Parashat Noach. We're starting the Torah from the beginning. We're ready at Parashat Bereshis. Now we're going to Noach. So in Bereshis, we learn about the creation of the world. God creates the world. He creates Adam. He creates Eve. And um, they're in paradise. It's a beautiful, wonderful world. It's a peaceful world. But that doesn't last for very long. And um, the one mitzvah that they had, they violated. Right? They ate from the tree of knowledge. And after that, they had two sons, Cain and Hevel. I mean, they had the sons before the sin. But afterwards, the first story that we hear about the two sons, they each get into a different type of industry, a different type of career. And then they clash, and Cain kills Hevel. And from there, the world just goes from bad to worse, from bad to worse, until the end of last week's Parsha, we learn that God is very upset at the world, and he decides he's going to destroy it. He's going to give it 120 years, but after that, that's over. Hasta la vista. Right? And we learn in the beginning of this week's parasha, parasha Noyach, that there was one man, his name was Noyach, and he was a wonderful person, but the rest of the world, the entire world was filled with thievery, Hamas, was filled with all of this stuff, and God says, that's it, we got to get rid of them. Probably it's a lesson for us, right? Mm-hmm. If there's Hamas in the world, you have to get rid of Hamas. Just get rid of them, that's it. See, even, even God didn't know what to do with Hamas. When the world is filled with Hamas, when it's filled with Hamas, you have to just wash it all away, flush it down, you know where it goes. Anyway, but that's, that's a side point. It's a Torah point, but it's a side point for this, uh, for this parasha that we're learning right now. Okay, so Noach is told by God that um, very soon I'm going to bring uh, Mabul, I'm going to bring a tremendous flood. Let's read it in the source, page 3, uh, yeah, page 3, source 1. God said to Noach, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth has become full of robbery because of them. And I am destroying them from the earth. Make for yourself an ark from gopher wood. You should make the ark with compartments and you should seal it both inside and outside with tar. I am bringing the floodwaters upon the earth to destroy all living beings under the heavens. All that is upon the earth will perish. Besides for Noyach, his children, and anyone that's with him. I will set up my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives, with you. Fine. Of all the living beings, you shall bring two of each into the ark to preserve alive with you. They shall be male and female. As for you, take for yourself from all edible foods and gather it, and it shall be for you and for them to eat. Imagine someone calls and tells you, hey, uh, buddy, in a few years, this entire city is going to cease to exist, and you will be the only one to survive. In order to survive, you have to make for yourself a safe room, put a lot of canned food into it, make sure you have a satellite phone with you, and bring your immediate family, and that's it. The rest of it is going to go kaput. How would you react? What's the natural reaction to that? Don't do that. <laughs> What's going on, right? Are you going to kill everybody? Well, what is this? Does Noach say that? No. <laughs> Noach followed all that God had commanded him. That's it. He hears a message that the entire world is going to be wiped away and he is going to be saved and he's told to build an ark. Strange, no? It's a bit strange. Fine. That's one story. Let's hear another story. Source number two. The Jewish people come out of Egypt. A lot of miracles. They receive the Torah. Moses goes on to Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. 
Forty days later, the Jewish people, they commit a terrible sin, the sin of the golden calf. How does God react? Source number two. God said to Moses, Go descend for your people that you have brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. Page four. They have quickly turned away from the path that I have commanded them. They have made themselves a molten calf. They have prostrated themselves before it, slaughtered sacrifices to it, and said, These are your gods, Israel, who have brought you up from the land of Egypt. God said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, and my anger will be kindled against them, so that I will annihilate them, and I will make you into a great nation. Very similar to the message God gave to Noah, right? God told Moses, that's it. I'm going to kill out this entire nation, which was uh, several million people, by the way. He says, and I'll start a new nation from you. You're going to be the patriarch of the new nation. What was Moshe's response? He didn't take out a response from Noah's playbook. Moshe pleaded before God and said, Why, God, should your anger be kindled against your people, whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt with great power and with a strong hand? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your very self, and to whom you said, I will multiply your seed like the stars of the heavens, and all this land which I said that I would give to your seed, they shall keep it as their possession forever. Moses returned to God and said, Oh, so, so apparently at one point this didn't work, right? Just, you know, holding on to the covenant that Hashem made with Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov that itself wasn't enough. And Moshe comes back with another re- rejoinder and he says, Please, this nation has committed a grave sin. They have made themselves a god of gold. And now, if you forgive their sin, then good. But if not, erase me now from your book which you have written. Moshe puts himself on the line and he says, God, if you are going to do what you are claiming to do, what you're threatening to do, on my dead body. That's it. Moshe Rabbeinu put himself in the line of fire. He sacrificed himself to save the Jewish people. Fine. So here we have two tzaddikim, two righteous people, who received similar messages and reacted very differently. Noyach went about his business, saving himself and not doing anything to save his, his generation. Moshe Rabbeinu, not only did he plead with God to save the Jewish people, he even put himself on the line. Now the Zoyar has a very fascinating conversation about this. How do we understand this? this uh, the, the, how do we compare these two? And um, are they comparable? And who is right? Who is wrong? Should Dayach have acted like Moshe? How, how does this work? So let's see how the Zoyar goes through this conversation. Let us examine the difference between Moses and the rest of the world. When God told Moses, now leave me alone, I will make you into a great nation, Moses immediately responded, shall I leave the Jews to their fate for my own sake? The Jews will say I abandoned them like Noah. Because God told Noah that he would rescue him in the ark along with his family. Noah did not ask God to have mercy and spare the world from being destroyed. This is why it is known as Noah's flood. And in the prophets, it's spoken about, it. it's referred to as Noah's flood so to speak, that he's at fault for the flood happening. He didn't try to stop it. Moses said, the people of the world will say that I killed them because God promised he would make me into a great nation. I would rather die than the Jews be annihilated. Moses beseeched God for mercy for them and for the world. He did not give up until he offered his own life and then God forgave them. Noah did not do so. He was content with personally being saved and he abandoned the world. Moses risked his life for the Jewish nation. <clears throat> so, 
So this is, um, so, so the Zohar presents us the story, um, and clearly Moses and Noyach are being compared here, juxtaposed. So now we have a conversation between two great Zohar sages, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yitzchok. Rabbi Yehuda says, although Noach was perfectly righteous, that's what it says in the Torah, Tzadik Tomim, he was perfectly righteous, he wasn't worthy for God to spare the entire world on his account. As Rabbi Yehuda is now going to defend Noach. He's going to defend him. He says, look, Noach, he was a big Tzadik, right? But he didn't really have the bandwidth, <laughs> didn't have the political capital, so to speak, to pull that off. In fact, look at what, what did Moses do. Come and see. Moses didn't ask in his own merit, but in the merit of the patriarchs. But Noyach had nobody whose merit he could count on like Moses had. Okay. So that's one way of uh, suggesting a, like a defense on his behalf. Nevertheless, I'm sorry, Rabbi Yitzchak said, they, they forgot to put that in the translation here. So Rabbi Yitzchak argued back against Rabbi Yehuda. And he said, Nevertheless, because God made a covenant with Noah, he should have asked for mercy. He should have brought the offering that he sacrificed after the flood, before the flood. Perhaps that would have placated God. Yeah, no, that, that, would, that would have calmed God, God down. All right, so what's going on over here? It says like this. You're saying that Noyach didn't have any bandwidth to, to do that, didn't have anything to offer, he didn't have anything to depend on. First of all, God just made a covenant with him. That's big stuff. Second of all, we do find that after the, the, the terrible flood, Noyach offers a sacrifice to God. And when God, the Torah says that God, uh, I say he, he smelled, right? He, he, he smelled the aroma of the sacrifice. And at that point, he was calmed and he made a covenant with the world that he, he will never destroy it. So Rabbi Yitzchak says, perhaps Noach should have brought that sacrifice before the, the, before the flood. And with that, he would have calmed God down. He would have elicited God's mercy for the generation. And uh, they would have been saved. Rabbi Yitzchak's point is, yeah, you're right. He didn't have ancestors with which to come to God with and say, hey, you promised the ancestors you wouldn't destroy them, right? God never told Adam that he would uh, keep his, his children alive. There was no covenant between God and Adam. So Noach didn't really have that. But... Noach was given a covenant himself, which that's uh, you know that's a that's a pretty high profile connection with God. Why didn't he pull those strings? Why didn't he offer a sacrifice? He knew how to offer sacrifices. Proof to that: after the flood, he offers a sacrifice, and we see that that sacrifice was able to elicit a promise from God that he will no longer destroy the world afterwards. So why didn't he do it beforehand? So here we find that Rabbi Yehuda is defending Noach, and Rabbi Yitzchak is uh, quite critical of Noach. So Rabbi Yehuda said, Rabbi Yehuda comes back and he says, what was Noach to do? The evil people in the world incited God and he should bring a sacrifice. What's he bringing a sacrifice for exactly? What's he thankful for? What's he, what's he telling God with the sacrifice? He's living in a world that's saturated with, with, with thievery and, and, and with um, everyone is corrupt, completely corrupt. Even the animals are corrupt. What's he bringing a sacrifice for? Noach was afraid for himself. He did not want to meet the fate of the evildoers whose deeds he saw constantly enraged, enraged God. So, so Rabbi Yehuda is, is going back and saying, well, what do you want from him? He should go and offer sacrifices and pray on behalf of the most horrible people that ever lived. Okay, so that's the Zoyar. 
So in the Zoyar, we have the story, we're comparing Noyach and Moshe Rabbeinu, right? So Noyach apparently made the mistake of not praying on behalf of his generation. Moshe Rabbeinu was very different. Rabbi Yehuda says, well, <laughs> Noyach did not have some of the tools that Moshe Rabbeinu had later on. And Rabbi Yitzchak says, no, 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 he had enough tools at least to make the effort. So Rabbi Yehuda is defending him, and Rabbi Yitzchak is being critical of him. Now, the Rebbe's father, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, um, towards the end of his life, he was sent, end of his life, you know, he was in, in the middle of his life, he was in his early 60s, he was sent off um, by the, the, the communists arrested him for preserving Judaism as best as he could, and they sent him off into exile, and he had nothing with him, and his wife, the Rebbe Tzadchana, the Rebbe's mother, she came to join him, and in, in addition to bringing food, etc., she brought some books with her. One of the books was the Zohar, a book of Zohar. And when I believe Yitzchak saw the Zohar, he took and he started to learn, and she realized that he wants to share his Torah, his, his unique Torah thoughts on it, so she made ink, and he wrote on the margins of the pages of the Zohar his explanations. And the Rebbe, every week after this was published in the late seven, in the early seventies, after these uh, these books were published, and it's a whole story for itself how these books came out of Russia. That now is not the time, the time for that. Every week, the Rebbe would explain one of the teachings of his father in these like shorthand notes that he wrote on the margins of the Zohar. They were very very shorthand, even though. Uh, whenever, when he was home, in other words, when he, before he was in exile and he would write extensively, the Rebbe's father wrote very, very extensively, very thoroughly, uh, with a lot of explanation. In fact, there are, there, there are tens of thousands of his writings, tens of thousands of pages of his writings are missing till today. Either they were destroyed or they're just missing. We don't know where they are. Um, but when he was, in, when he was uh, in exile and all he had was a book with the margins of the book, and a little bit of ink that his wife was able to put together, so he was very limited in how to express himself. So you express himself really in shorthand, you have to be a tremendous scholar, a tremendous Kabbalist in order to understand what he's saying. So the Rebbe, who is that tremendous scholar and Kabbalist, uh, would explain his father's teachings every week, every uh, every time that there was a Fabrengan on Shabbos. So the, the, the Rebbe's father, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak, has a comment on this conversation happening in the Zoya between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yitzchak. My father explains, Rabbi Yehuda interprets Noach in a positive light, and Rabbi Yitzchak interprets him in a negative light. Why? Why is that? Because each of them is expressing their perspective of their spiritual level. Rabbi Yehuda personifies the attribute of kindness, and therefore interprets Noach in a positive light. While Rabbi Yitzchak personifies the attribute of severity and interprets Noach in a negative light. Okay. Before we get into this, in general, when two people find themselves in a situation, it is quite common for the two of them to have two very different reactions, right? I'm not going to try to bring an example of what the situation might be, but you have two people sitting in the same room, and all of a sudden there's a flash of light, right? Right? Um, One of them is going to be, oh, great, there's lightning, and that means there's going to be rain, and wonderful, we need to have rain. And the other one is going to jump up and be frightened from the lightning, right? So one person, when they see lightning, they're excited. That means rain is coming. The other person, when they see lightning, they're they're scared. Why? Because the lightning could be dangerous. Now, are either of them wrong? No, they're both right. Lightning is part of rainfall. And lightning also could be very dangerous. But there's one type of person that automatically 
or typically and naturally is inclined to focus on the, the rain that's coming as a result. Another one is focused on or naturally inclined to think about the, the dangers that it, repre- that it represents. Both of them are right, but both of them are taking very different approaches. Why? They have a different nature. Each one of them is different. Now, are we going to start to figure out why are they different? I don't know. However, however, it's interesting and fascinating that when you open up a book of Mishnah or of Talmud or etc., you're going to find that in many, many laws in Judaism, there are discussions uh, because much of Jewish law is not articulated clearly in the Torah. The Torah just give us, gives us the basics. It, I wouldn't call it basics. The Torah is the written Torah, which, with, which has everything embedded within it. So everything is there, but you have to know how to apply it and how to extract all of the information from there. And there's a tremendous amount of tradition that was passed down from Moses to all the Jewish people. So over the generations, especially in the times of the Second Holy Temple, it turned out that when there were certain questions that arose, so you had different camps. You had some rabbis, some great sages, that the way they approached the issue was to say that this is prohibited. And another camp that would say this issue is permitted. Or this is pure and this is impure, right? Uh, this is kosher, this is not kosher. It's not that they were arguing on the fundamentals. The fundamentals are all there, and they weren't arguing on the tradition either. However, based on the fundamentals and the rules given down by the tradition, we know how to apply it to modern-day examples, to modern-day issues, as time goes on, and as civilization develops, and as new circumstances present themselves. So now we have different approaches, different approaches of, of how to deal with it. Now what the halacha will be, it's very clear, the Torah says, you're going to have a Sanhedrin of 70 great sages, 71 great sages, and you're going to take a vote, and the majority wins, and that's going to be the halacha for everyone. However, just because there's a majority, that doesn't mean the minority got it wrong. The minority said something that's true according to Torah, but they said something that had a very different result, and that result ended up not being the halacha. However, since the minority opinion is still Torah, therefore it is still recorded. But now the question is, why do these people say it's permitted? And why did these people end up saying that it's prohibited? The, the, the legal answer is because these people, they understood in their mind that it should be permitted based on their training and based on their knowledge and based on their study. These people understood, these rabbis understood that it should be prohibited. Right? So the question really is, why is it that these people... They went in this direction, and these people went in that direction. So the Alter Rebbe in the introduction to Tanya tells us something fascinating. Source number four, even in the case of the laws governing things prohibited and permitted, which have been revealed to us and to our children, we find differences of opinion among Mishnaic and Talmudic sages from one extreme to the other. Yet, all are the words of the living God. The plural is used as a reference to the source of life for the souls of Israel, which are generally divided into three categories. In the source of the souls of Israel, you have different types. You have the right, the left, and center. What does that mean? Namely, kindness, which is chesed, which is on the right, severity, which is gvura, discipline, which is on the left, and so on. The souls whose root originates in the category of kindness are likewise inclined towards kindness in the leniency of their decisions and so forth, as is known. The fact of the matter is that we all come from a different source in the source of souls. 
And therefore, based on our source, that is what our natural inclination is going to be when it comes to rulings of Torah. Now, it won't be exclusively that way. Even those that most often are permit, are in the permitted camp, the ones that permit things, sometimes they're going to prohibit things. There's, there is some type of, I say, um, I say the, the kind of mix a little bit at certain points. But for the most part, you're going to have sages that are in the camp of permitting things, and you have sages in the camp of prohibiting things because they come from different sources. So the Rebbe's father is applying this rule to this conversation about Noyach. And he says, huh? That could be that some people come from the, with, born when the moon was growing. And the oh, very good. Yeah, it could be it has to do with when they were born, etc. But that means everything that happens in this world is a reflection of what's happening in the spiritual worlds, right? This physical world reflects the spiritual world. So there's sometimes seasons or days or you know hours that reflect chesed, kindness. And there are some times in the world that reflect discipline. You know, it's, it's all, yes, it's all interconnected, 100%. So the, the Rebbe's father is essentially saying like this, we look at the Zoyar, and we see that there's a conversation about Noyach, and we're trying to um, understand the story of Noyach. Should we defend him, or should we be critical of him? And you see Rabbi Yehuda defends him, and Rabbi Yitzchak is critical of him. And the Rebbe's father explains, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak explains, that according to the Kabbalah, Rabbi Yehuda actually comes from the level of chesed, from kindness, which is very forgiving and quite giving and generous, and therefore he's very generous in his interpretation and is in his in his analysis of Noyach. And Rabbi Yitzchak, who comes from Gvura, who comes from discipline, he is less generous in his analysis of of Noyach. Right? We even find that uh, the, the name Yitzchak, that's the name of the second of our forefathers, that's well known in Kabbalah, that he was the forefather that represented discipline. Gvura. Right? So it's very clearly there in the name. Fine. So now, okay, so here, here the, the Rebbe's father has an explanation. An explanation of why Rabbi Yehuda is generous in his analysis, Rabbi Yitzchak is critical in his analysis. But the Rebbe is not happy with that. In other words, he's not satisfied with that explanation. Why is he not satisfied with this explanation? Why does he want to probe deeper? Let's look at page 7. The matter is still difficult. The Torah's instruction <clears throat> to judge every person favorably is of course directed to every Jew, including those who represent the attribute of severity. How then could Rabbi Yitzchak interpret Noyach in a negative light and not judge him favorably? <clears throat> as the Mishnah instructs. The obligation to judge someone favorably is not just to judge Jews favorably. In general, you judge people favorably. Every Jew has that instruction, right? Even Rabbi Yitzchak. So why is Rabbi Yitzchak being critical? I thought, well, because the source of his soul is in negativity, is in severity, and therefore he's negative. So what? So let him go against the root of his soul. He has an obligation, according to the Torah, to judge people favorably. Moreover, here the Rebbe brings up an issue that actually is rooted in this week's parsha. The Torah doesn't even speak negatively about non-kosher animals. Well, what does this mean? What's going on over here? So in this week's parsha, in the story of Noach, God tells Noach he should build, a te- build an ark and he and his family are going to go into it and all the animals are going to come into it. However, how many animals from each species should come in? So from the 
kosher animals, the animals that ultimately will be kosher for the Jewish people to consume, to eat. You should bring seven of each. Those that are pure, those that are kosher for consumption, he should bring seven. For the animals that are not kosher, he should only bring two, male and female. The Torah does not say impure. Tmeya is a very negative tone. It's impure. It says It says not pure. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, let's look at the source from the Talmud, never let a derogatory word come out of your mouth because the verse used extra, it eight extra letters to avoid saying something unclean, as it says, from the pure animals and from the animals that are not pure. If the Torah would have only said, it would have saved itself eight letters. And in general, the Torah is very, very uh, economical when it comes to letters and words and sentences. It says it's very, very short. And if it, commu- if it could communicate a concept in less words and less letters, it chooses to do so. And yet in this week's parasha, in order to communicate that, this, that these animals are not kosher, that they are tmeim, that they are impure, it says, Asher tahira, I have to say an extra eight letters. So the Rebbe continues, if the Torah is careful not to write a negative word about an animal, how much more so should this apply to Noach was a righteous man? Noach, the Torah starts off this parasha by introducing Noach as a righteous person. How then can it be that Rabbi Yitzchak interprets him in a negative light? Wouldn't it make sense that if God himself is bearing testimony that this is the man who is the tzaddik and the tomim, etc., Definitely Rabbi Yitzchak should have that obligation to judge him in a positive way. And here the Rabbi goes further and says, by the way, this question is not just on the Zoyar and the conversation between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yitzchak. In fact, there is a Rashi. There is a comment from Rashi, Rabbi Shlomi Yitzchaki, who was the main commentator of the Torah from the 11th century. He also brings a very fascinating conversation on the line of the Torah which says that Noyach was a tzaddik, was a righteous person. Right? Page 8. We also need to understand Rashi's commentary on the words, perfect in his generation. It says, tzaddik tamim hoya bedoi roisov. He was perfect in his generations. Now what's, it seems like a qualifier. It's relative. Everything is relative. Oh, that's what you say. You're saying that it's relative. Compared to his generation. Ah, okay. So what does that mean? What does it mean compared to his generation? That You're right. You're right. He, he comes from a society where that was corrupt. Okay. And among those, he was righteous, considering his generation. So one second. So that means if you would be in it, what was that? That could be very that negative, could be huh? That even in this bad generation, he come out good. That you have to work harder to be this way. Ah. Uh, Amit is saying that actually this is a tremendous um, positive. It's, it's a tremendous compliment to him, actually. It's not saying, oh, in comparison right. to... Oh, that's what you're saying. Right. No, I agree. Ah. That even though his society was so corrupt, he's, he rose above them. Oh, very good. And very good. did not himself be influenced by them. Right. So that means that Noyak was very, very strong, right? He was a very strong person, a very special tzaddik. But hey, 
Look what Rashi tells us. <laughs> Rashi says, not everyone agrees with that analysis. Rashi comments, some of our sages interpret the specification in his generations positively, right? Like, like you and Amit are saying, arguing that had Noach lived in a righteous era, he would have been even more righteous, right? I mean, this guy was a huge tzaddik, if he's able to be a tzaddik. In such a corrupt generation, for sure, ooh, I mean, we're talking here about the world's greatest tzaddik. <laughs> Other sages interpret the specification negatively, arguing that Noach was only righteous relative to his generation. But had he lived in the generation of Avraham, he wouldn't have been considered great at all. Oh, that's heavy. That's heavy. Right? And Rashi, Rashi, what? No, but in his generation. Yeah, but so we're saying it as a very I, negative I, thing, I actually. I don't see it as a negative thing. I don't see it completely negative. But maybe he would not have been so righteous or in not in the same level as the uh, Abraham's generation. So... Right. So, so the, the point is, you're right. I'm not, I'm not saying you're right or wrong. And the answer is, whichever way you want to go for it, you've yeah. got backing. <laughs> whichever way you want to go for it, you've got sages who back you. Right? Some will say, some of them, Rashi tells us, there are those of our sages that say, this qualifier, this of in his generation, on the contrary, that amplifies how righteous Noyak was. And the others that say, eh, it kind of diminishes how righteous really he was. Let's not get too carried away. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what's the question? <laughs> Considering that it is possible to interpret Noach in a positive light, how can it be that some great sages chose to interpret him specifically in a negative light? What's going on here? Yeah? We have an obligation to, 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 to judge people positively, right? Everyone has that, that obligation. So why were there sages that chose, or that they, or that they, they taught, that this bedei raisav is not amplifying how special he was? On the contrary, it's diminishing how special he was. Why would they choose to do that? Whereas why would, why would they teach in that way? And now the most important thing is we also need to understand the practical lesson we can derive from this for our personal divine service. So the fact is here. Here's where the, the, the question, the Rebbe's question stands on this. The fact of the matter is that when it comes to Noyach, we see that the story is complicated, right? Um, right away, he is like juxtaposed with Moshe, right? So Noyach didn't ask for his generation, Moshe did, okay. Now, the Zoyar has a conversation about how do we analyze the fact that Noyach didn't ask for his generation. Rabbi Yehuda is generous with him and he says he really didn't have the option of it. Rabbi Yitzchak is very not generous. He's critical and he said he had the option and he basically chose not to. Fine. So we have to decide why would Rabbi Yitzchak choose to say that about him? Why can't he judge him favorably? Even though his soul is rooted in Gvura, which is disciplinary and is more critical, etc. Not that it's wrong, but why why would he say that? Like why why would he go and choose to teach about Noyach in that way? Another question you could ask is what's the point of criticizing Noyach? What happened happened. It's water under the bridge. The fact of the matter is, we read about Noyach every year. The Zoyar talks about Noyach. This conversation of Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yitzchak was recorded in the Zoyar. 
And to go even further, Rashi, which is the basic commentary on the Torah, right away when the Torah introduces Noach to us as a perfect tzaddik b'doi reisov in his generation, Rashi tells us, by the way, there are two camps here. One camp analyzes him positively, that it amplifies how special he was, and one of them analyzes this qualifier negatively, that it diminishes uh, how special he was. And the Rebbe's trying to understand why would we have these two camps here? What's the purpose of it? And most importantly, what's the lesson we can learn about the fact that Torah, in other words, the tradition of Torah, is telling us that there are two ways to analyze. What's, yeah. what's happening here? That's what we're going to try to figure out. So page nine. Um, and remember, one of the big questions we had was that the Torah itself is usually very, very careful not to say something negative about anything. Instead of saying Timeo, right, which is a negative, a derogatory term about unkosher animals, it says Einena Tahira in our parsha, right? So, it, in other words, how would these sages explain why the Torah includes in its record of such a tzaddik like Noyach that, hey, he wasn't such a tzaddik, he was only Bidarais of only in his generation? Why would the Torah have to say that? And why would the Torah have to uh, kind of juxtapose Noyach and Moshe, etc.? All right. So page 9. There is a well-known question asked regarding the rule that the Torah adds unneeded words in order to avoid stating something derogatory. What's the question? Despite this rule, despite the fact that the Torah is telling us that, he, that the Torah prefers to say neno tohira instead of tohira, despite this rule, we find that the Torah uses the word temeya, impure, many times. And not just terms such as the animals that isn't the animal that isn't pure. If you're gonna go in the book of Leviticus, Parsha Shmini, where it talks about kosher and non-kosher animals, <laughs> the word tumme comes up so many times. So what, what happened to the Torah? All of a sudden they got the uh, derogatory language. You cannot use long word long time even the same time. It's ah, really it's gonna be too much. Ah, the, the Torah ran out of ink. Okay. In the word limit for the Torah. You know? Here's the word limit of the Torah. Okay. So no, that's not the reason. Here's the reason. The answer is that when discussing practical law, it is imperative to use clear and precise language to avoid any possibility for misunderstanding. <laughs> Imagine, because yeah, it comes to the chaza, the pig, instead of saying, it is the term would say is, Einoi Tohar, right? And then someone's going to come and miss out. He's going to misread the Einoi. And what's he going to read? Tohar, right? I was once hearing a, a, a child, like, like, a, like, a, like a, a therapist for parenting. And he said that when you, tell, when you tell children, don't do this, don't do it, they don't hear don't. They hear do it. He said, he, he wants, like his two-year-old grandson was, was carrying like this full cup of, of some type of liquid and it was on top of the carpet and he was about to say don't drop it but he knew that the kid would hear drop it and he would drop it so he said hey hey why don't you come here and place the the, the, the what's it called place the cup on the table and he did it but if you say don't drop it what's he going to hear drop it yeah. same thing over here if the terror when it's telling us this is not allowed this is yeah. On kosher, the Torah has to say tome. <laughs> you shouldn't misread it, mishear it, right? make maizalach, right? However, however, when the context is a story, 
that does and have practical ramifications, the Torah uses clean language and avoids stating anything derogatory. In the story of Noyach, when the Torah is telling us that Noyach was told to bring two, uh, seven of the kosher animals and two of the non-kosher animals. Yeah? So the Torah can tell us the story and say, Enena Tahira. Right? By the way, even uh, Noyach himself, someone could ask, well, if Hashem is telling Noyach instructions, Hashem has to be clear to Noyach, right? So the truth of the matter is, Noyach did not have to collect the animals. Could you imagine Noyach had to run around the entire world and collect the animals? It's an impossible job. He didn't have to collect any animals. Noyach stood by the teva, by the ark, as, the, as it was about to rain, and all the animals came to him. And Noyach didn't even have to say anything, do anything, etc. The animals would come up to the ark. If it was allowed in, it would go in. And if it was not allowed in, boom, it was stopped, and that's it. It wasn't some type of technology that Noyach came up with. This was God's way of making sure that only those are supposed to be in there, in there or not, whatever. So the Torah is notifying us that at the end of the day, the only ones that are going to be in there is that from the kosher species, there will be seven. From the non-kosher species, there will be two, male and female. And that's it. There is no practical do or don't here. No one has to do anything. The Torah is telling us a story. That from the non-kosher animals, there's going to be two of them. When it comes to a story that there's no practical ramifications, there's no instruction over here, the Torah could be very clean, non-derogatory, and say, could use a few extra letters in order to tell us that when you have the option, speak in a clean language and a clean, clean tongue. But when you have to give an instruction, you got to be clear. Oh, so now this could explain why the sages are taking uh, a magnifying glass to Noyach, and some of them are being quite critical of Noyach. This principle can explain our case. When there is something negative about Noyach's conduct, this cannot be covered up in order to focus solely on the positive. You know, you know those people that whenever there's a problem, they say, oh no, let's just think positively about people, let's just do you be united, Excuse me. If there's a problem, you have to identify the problem, call it out for what it is, and fix it. You don't fix things by shoving them under the rug. This has practical importance in order to caution us not to take an example from his conduct. If Noyach did something wrong, if Noyach failed as a leader, as a tzaddik, this must be pointed out. There's no choice but to point out the negative aspect in order to teach us not to emulate it. What was the negative aspect about Noyach's conduct? The Zohar notes the difference between Noyach and Moses. Moses prayed to God for mercy for sinners, and they were saved. Noyach, by contrast, did not pray for the sinners of his generation, and this is why the flood is known by his name, Noyach's flood. Now, the Zohar does explain that Moses beseeched God not in his own merit, but in the merit of the patriarchs. Noach didn't have the patriarchs to invoke, so what could he have done? But nevertheless, he should have tried asking for mercy in his own merit. The point is that Rabbi Yitzchak is not, Rabbi Yitzchak is not just a criticizer. That's not his point. Rabbi Yitzchak is trying to tell us there is something that we must learn from Noach's failure. We have to appreciate and understand that his behavior should not be emulated. And in fact, the first person not to learn from Noyach was who? Moses. Moses. <laughs> he was the first one not to learn from him. Moses knew history. 
When Moses heard that, that Hashem plans on annihilating the Jewish people, he knew, I'm not the first one that's facing an annihilation of all my people and God wants to rebuild everything from me. This happened to Noyach. The problem is that Noyach didn't lift a finger to save them. I'm going to be different. And he was different. And he was successful. And he is credited. But Avram did it before Noah. Avram didn't succeed. Avram didn't, Avram didn't pray for sinners. Avram was of looking for... Well, he did. He, I mean, he, no, he said... He got to spare the people of Zom. Only in the merit so, of... So many righteous. Okay. So that means he's praying for the righteous. Moses didn't, didn't negotiate with God. Moses didn't come to God and say, there's righteous in the Jewish people I can destroy. He didn't say that. Moses said, <laughs> despite of everything, you're not touching the Jews. You're not touching them. The sinners. <laughs> this is amazing. He's not, he's not, he didn't come and say, come on, there's Aaron, there's his sons, there's a few other tzaddikim. He didn't say that. He didn't enter a negotiation with God. Abraham entered a negotiation with God and he was ultimately not successful. You know you can't fight City Hall. You can't fight City Hall. Moses fought City Hall. He did. He fought City Hall. He sacrificed himself and he won. So what's well, the, the point? Well, if Moses would not have been able to accomplish, there would not have been a Jewish nation. That's exactly so the point. He, exactly. he was... He, he was thinking beyond and he knew that the people could be changed he had faith in them that could be but God told Moses God told Moses I'm going to get rid of them and start it again from you right so it's not like in other words why is Moses worrying about God it's very clear that when Moses prayed on behalf of the Jewish people he was not worried about God and God having a nation and God having a day he wasn't worried about that he was, he was fighting against God he said no 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 these people no not from me I don't want my family to be the next Jewish nation I want these people to remain your nation who are these people sinners Moses was not praying on behalf of righteous so he didn't even learn from Avram he, he learned what not to do by knowing that Noah failed that's why well, that's why it's the a lot to argue Rabbi and you know I think, you know, I used to teach Parshat Noah. Yeah. So I, I used to be, the kids would come up with such good ideas. So we could go on all night, but let's not, let's go on. Right, so the point here is not to convince anyone of every, anything, but there, there's a tremendous lesson that we can learn from this. What's the lesson? Noah wants, so now I hear that I was going to go even deeper and say that Noah is not even upset that, we are, that the Zoya is criticizing him. On the contrary, Noyach appreciates the criticism. Noyach wants rectification for his failure to pray on behalf of the world. This rectification is achieved through the Torah relating this and emphasizing that this conduct was incorrect and cautioning us not to emulate it. In other words, by interpreting Noyach negatively, we rectify his shortcoming. So on a deeper level, this is actually good for Noyach. How fascinating, how fascinating. Noyach doesn't come and say, well, I'm insulted that you don't see my point of view. But that's not Noyach's problem. Noyach is not so uh, flimsy. He's not, so, he's not made of thin, uh, thin paper. No, no, no. Noyach says, actually, I welcome the criticism. Because yes, it was a mistake. It was a mistake. 
I should have prayed on behalf of them. And I want my story to be a tale of caution, a cautionary tale for all future generations. This is somewhat similar to the repentance process for a person who sinned and also caused the public to sin. Personal repentance can only rectify his personal sin, but not for causing others to sin. Rectification for causing others to sin is achieved by publicizing that so-and-so led the public astray. By warning others not to follow his example, his sin is rectified. Ultimately, page 11, ultimately, Noach wants us to interpret him negatively and state that he did not act properly with regard to failing to pray on behalf of his fellow people because this rectifies his error. So it turns out that Rabbi Yitzchak, he's not criticizing Noyach because he had a bad day. He's not criticizing Noyach because he's a criticizer, because he's a critic, because he's negative. On the contrary, Rabbi Yitzchak is saying there is a cautionary tale here. And for Noyach's benefit, we are going to say the story. We're going to say it in its detail, in its negative light. Noyach might take a few darts as a result, but Noyach wants that to happen in order that he should be an eternal lesson for future generations not to follow that path. And in fact, we find a very similar thing to Moshe himself. What, what is this? This is similar to what we once explained about the different forms of love for their fellow Jews that Moses and Aaron expressed. Well, what's going on over here? When Moses died, the Torah tells us that the men cried and mourned his death. But when Aaron died, the women mourned as well. This was because Aaron excelled in restoring peace and harmony between married couples. Okay, so in the parasha that we finished, Few weeks, uh, two weeks ago, right? In Simcha's Torah, we finished with Zayis Abracha, which is the final parasha of the Torah. Meish Rabbeinu passes away in this parasha. So at the end, there is a eulogy for Meish Rabbeinu. A eulogy, a, a tremendous eulogy. Right before the eulogy, the Torah tells us something very interesting. Source number six. The sons of Israel mourned Moses' passing in the plains of Moab for 30 days, and then they concluded the days of mourning for Moses. Vayivku b'nei Yisrael. The sons of Israel. B'nai Yisrael means the men. Now, his brother Aaron passed away a few months earlier, in the month of Av, the first day of Av, and it's in the book of Numbers, source number 7. What does it say over here? When he passed away, the whole congregation saw that Aaron had passed, and the entire house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days. Not B'nai Yisrael, Beis Yisrael, the house of Israel. And Rashi explains... The sons of Israel mourned for Moses. This means the men alone. But regarding Aaron, due to his pursuit of peace and efforts to restore harmony between couples, the verse says that the house of Israel mourned him, meaning both men and women. Oh, so what was the difference between Moses and Aaron? Both of them loved the Jewish people tremendously. Now here's the difference. Moses was a man of truth. He was a man of truth. He never said a lie. And therefore, whenever there was, there was tension, there was a dispute, whatever it was, he was the man of justice. He would hear the two sides, lay down the rule, and that was that. Aaron was very different. Aaron was a guy, he got down and dirty into the mud. He sought out all the gossip that was going on by the people. He heard which couples were fighting all the time, and which partners were, were having issues, and which friends were becoming enemies, etc. And he would, let's say there was a couple that was fighting, right? And they were on the verge of divorce. 
He would go to the car, he would, he would corner the man, he would say, by the way, I just had a conversation with your wife, and she feels terrible about the fight, and she really loves you very much, and she wants to get back to you. She never said such a thing to Aaron. They never had the conversation, and she hated the guy. <laughs> she was upset. She was very upset with him for whatever it was. Then, he would run to the wife, to the wife in the house, and he would say, I just had a conversation with your husband, he feels horrible about the fight, he loves you very much, he really wants to make up with you. That guy was so upset at his wife, he, was, he, was, he didn't know what to do with himself. But now after both of them heard that the other person loves them so much and really wants to get back together, guess what happened? They got back together and they had a loving and wonderful family. They had more children and guess what? The first baby born after the restoration of this marriage was named who? Aaron. And there were thousands upon thousands of children in the Jewish nation called Aaron. It was the most popular name. Why? Because Aaron was a yachna. He went around, he listened to all the, all the shtick that everyone was talking, all of the lashon hara, all of the gossip. He got down and dirty and he lied through his teeth. Why? To bring people together, to bring couples together, to bring peace among the people. Moses was not capable of doing that. Moses was a man of truth. He couldn't go and tell a wife that the husband is upset about the, if it's not true. He couldn't do it. He loved the Jewish people. He was ready to sacrifice himself, right? We just learned that he sacrificed his life and saved the Jewish people. And yet, when it came to the day-to-day goings-on in the nation, Moses was not able to accomplish what Aaron was able to accomplish. And guess what? Moses inserted that negative, quote-unquote, this negative concept, the, the fact if you would juxtapose Moses to Aaron, it turns out that Aaron accomplished far more than what Moses accomplished. Moses saved the Jewish people. The people themselves, what they appreciated most was the fact that Aaron saved every individual family, every individual partnership, every individual friendship. And this was stated clearly in the Torah. When Aaron passed away, it says, Kol, Beis, Yisrael, men, women, everyone was mourning the loss. When Meshach Rabbeinu passed away, it was only the men. And who wrote that in the Torah? Meshach. Meshach Rabbeinu, as a prerequisite, as an introduction to his, to his eulogy, he writes, it was only Bnei Yisrael, it was only the men, and not like my brother, which was called Beis Yisrael. Uh, page 12, this matter is stated and emphasized in the Torah portion that discusses Moshe's greatness. So why are we mentioning something negative about Moshe? Because Moshe himself desires the Torah should emphasize this so that all Jews should know that love for their fellow Jews should be expressed like the way that Aaron did it. Not just that I'm willing to sacrifice myself in order to protect the Jews, but I'm willing to put myself on the line and get involved in the day-to-day problems and issues in order to save every individual Jew, their, their, their shalom bias, and everything that's going on. I'm willing to get involved down and dirty in order to help them out. And Moshe Rabbeinu writes that clearly, don't learn from me, learn from Aaron, my brother. In other words, if we only praise Noyach, we leave a shortcoming of his in place. But when we also highlight something undesirable about his conduct with the intention of cautioning against it, we rectify it, thereby transforming Noyach to be fully meritorious and praiseworthy. So just a basic summary of this whole thing. When the Torah criticizes Noyach, whether it's in the Zoyar or the Rashi, which says only Bedorotav in his generation, that is only in order to rectify Noyach. It's not in order to throw darts at him. 
So, page 13. As mentioned, Rashi cites this matter at the beginning of a Torah portion. Some of our sages interpret it positively, and others interpret it negatively. This parallels the two explanations given in the Zohar, thus highlighting the connection between Rashi's commentary and the Zohar, right? We see here that there's like these... Um, we see these similarities here between the Rashi, which is the basic explanation and classic explanation of the Torah, which is the revealed sense of the Torah. And you have the same idea in the Zohar, in the, in the mystical part of the Torah. Uh, you find this also with regard to the rain that God brought upon, uh, that, that started off the Mabal, that started off the, the flood. That's source number eight. The rain was upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Rashi says the rain was upon the earth, Following this, it says the flood. So is it rain or is it flood? This means that when it began raining, it was with mercy. So if they would repeat, repent, there's a mistake here, if, it would, if they would repent, it would be rain of blessing. When they failed to repent, it became a flood. So there's a big question, where did Rashi get this from? It turns out that it comes from the Zayar Chadosh, which is a, a mystical Torah, a Torah book. Rabbi Yitzchak said, come and see when God brought the waters, he initially did so with mercy. To show the world that if they repent, it will be accepted. This is alluded to in the earlier verse on the rain, while the later verse says on the flood, if they would have repented, it would have been rain of blessing, but because they didn't, it became a flood. <coughs> so page 14, the Rebbe tells us this connection is even clearer in an earlier comment of Rashi's, that the rain was initially calm, so that if the people would repent, it would have been a rain of blessing. The sole source for this comment is in the Zerah Chadash. It is not found in any other Midrashim of the sages. This proves that it is erroneous to assert that Rashi's commentary only addresses the literal meaning of the verses and doesn't incorporate anything from other forms of Torah interpretation. The truth is that Rashi's commentary also contains wondrous secrets, as the founder of Chabad, the Alter Rebbe, said that the Rashi is the wine of Torah. What happens when you drink wine? You start saying secrets. Right, so Rashi is called the wine of Torah because in Rashi many of the secrets of the Torah start coming out. Rashi's association with the deeper hidden aspects of the Torah is also expressed in a number of miraculous stories about his life. I will do this quickly. This begins with a well-known story related about his birth. When Rashi's mother was expecting him, she was once walking down a narrow street and a carriage was heading towards her. The street was too narrow to allow for her to pass the carriage unharmed and the wall miraculously bent inwards to accommodate her thus saving both the mother and her child this is a story that's been told for for centuries there's a certain wall in worms i don't even know how you said vermeiza it's a city in in uh, in, in uh, germany um where there's like this enclave like this little like you know it's like a it's bent inwards. And everyone said, this is the story that happened. And the Rebbe says, my father-in-law, the Rebbe, related that when he was in Worms, Rashi's city of birth, he saw the alcove in the wall that even the local non-Jews identify as the place where his, this story occurred. So I was just pointing out that Rashi is not just some, you know, simple teacher telling us just the simple literal meaning of the Torah. He incorporates in his explanations, in his commentary, the, the, the what's it called? The mystical teachings and the secrets of the Torah. And in general, Rashi also represents an entire element of miracles and a miraculous way of life. And the, the, the fact that he was born, that he, that he lived, the fact that his mother was able to give birth to him, that itself was part of a miracle. Okay, so what is the lesson? That's always the, 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 the main question that comes out of all of this. What's the lesson for us uh, to know that when it comes to Noyach, when it comes to Meish Rabbeinu, they, they, are, they, they appreciate 
when when we are critical of them, so to speak, in order to learn what not to do. So what's the lesson? There is a lesson we can learn from the Zoya in regards to our divine service. We must know that regardless of how advanced our divine service is, we can never be satisfied with our current state. We must constantly strive for more, knowing that our current state is derogatory. Derogatory relative to the higher level that stands beyond. It's never enough. You have to always do better. Awareness of this derogation. Huh, what a word. Uh, awareness of this will inspire us to overcome it and reach the higher level. But if we think only of the praiseworthiness of our current level, we will get stuck on it, a level that is derogatory relative to the level beyond it. Right? So even though Noyach has, uh, you know, he could defend himself. Even though Mahesh Rabbeinu could defend himself. He says, no, 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 don't defend me. On the contrary, there's a better way. Same thing with us. We shouldn't look at what we're doing and say, you know what, it's enough. <laughs> better than nothing. No, what do you mean it's enough? It's wonderful, it's beautiful, but there's more, there's more that could be accomplished. An example from the field of Torah study. When a person has studied a particular topic a hundred times, or even a hundred and one times, they may believe that they have already achieved perfection in this regard, but such a person is nevertheless told that they need to progress further and elevate themselves to an even higher level. The same is true regarding inspiring others, we cannot suffice with our personal achievements and need to work to inspire others <coughs> and ultimately the entire world. So here's here's one of the things that at least personally I take from this uh, from this uh, from this talk from the Rebbe, and that is it, it's it's so crucial not to be brittle and insulted when we are criticized. If you're criticized, it's it's actually a good thing. First of all there might be a real problem and we have to really fix the problem but even if we could defend the problem and say it's not so bad and I can't be blamed for it and well my circumstances XYZ what are you doing? on the contrary rise above it if someone is calling me out on a certain issue on a certain problem I should pay attention to that now not necessarily is every criticism justified but if it's a justified criticism we shouldn't go and say, oh, I'm insulted the fact that you highlighted a certain criticism. What are you being insulted by? If it's a justified criticism, on the contrary, do better. And if it's a justified criticism and you can't do better, well, at least others won't learn from me. <laughs> at least others will know how to identify that problem. And when someone, when someone identifies a, a problem and critiques it, that doesn't mean that it's Lashon Hara, and that doesn't mean that they, are, that they are separating between Jews and causing Jews not to love each other. On the contrary, it can be done with tremendous love, with tremendous achdus, with unity. Um, there are problems, we cannot shove them under the rug, and we have to just make sure that before we call out a problem, we have to know for sure that it's a problem. That's, that's a separate issue. But if you know for a fact that it's a problem, and it's clear that it's an issue, then there is no, there's nothing wrong with trying to rectify it by either approaching the person or finding ways that without embarrassing them that they should be made aware of the critique of the issue and uh, in order that they should be better. And it also it's with regard to ourselves, the way we uh, judge ourselves and view ourselves, etc., we, we should never be satisfied with where we are. We should always strive to do better. Alrighty, and with that, we conclude today's class and I look forward to seeing you next week.